Hello, everybody. Turn us up in my headphones, Charles. Turning it up. Hello, 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 everybody, one and all. Welcome to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. My name is Charles, and with me today, as always, is my lifelong friend and co-host, Dylan. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friend, Charles. I am ready to talk some fantasy (laughs) with my friend as well, Dylan, but not just any fantasy today. Oh, <laughs> that is right, because today we are talking about one of our favorites. This is a series, and this is an author that we have gone into such depth that, <laughs> I, I don't know, I, I feel like we've become like champions for this series, even though it doesn't really need it. It's already incredibly popular, yeah. but I, I just feel like we are huge proponents of this series, and I love talking about it. I love being in this in this world. We put it aside for a while. And uh, I've missed it. I'm happy to be back in. And that means, of course, we are talking about Joe Abercrombie's First Law universe, but we are now into the standalones. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been super pumped to get to talk yeah. about the just everything, really. As I've said a few times before, I think that... Joe Abercrombie just gets better and better as he... In, in my read of the series, I've enjoyed basically every book more than the last, and I've read them a few times already, each of them. And we're getting toward these standalones where he's telling these complete stories, and it's just so awesome <laughs> to see him uh, deliver on a theme and wrap things up in one book in such a satisfying way. So... That being said, we will be only covering uh, some of our best served cold coverage yeah, today. That was going to be my sake. We have so much. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> there will be a satisfying end to our episodes at some point. Uh, <laughs> not not my best. Not my best. But no, no. Point being, John yes. Abercrombie I'll, I'll, was able to tell a complete okay. story yes. in Go one book, but we will not be telling a complete. Nice. Yeah, we won't be covering that story in one podcast. We plan to do episode one podcast episode. We'll do it in the podcast. We'll do it in this one podcast, <laughs> this one show. But it will be two episodes, and we're thinking two, but definitely not one. Yes. And that's where we're coming from. That was my sec. That was going to be my you segue. Did it. You, you had set me up, and then you the had kept time. going for it. Uh, but we did. We got there eventually, and that is what mm. matters. And yeah. it's an exciting day. Best served cold by Joe Abercrombie, Part One. Uh, we're going to get approximately halfway through the story, and I'm excited to get mm-hmm. into it. But first, Dylan, you have got yes. something to say, right? I always have something to say, Charles. And <laughs> this time it is that even though we're probably only going to cover about the first half of Best Serve Cold, we will not be holding back when it comes to spoilers for Best Serve Cold in total as a novel. So, so if you haven't read that yet, then now's a 
great time to pick it up. And I'll also say we we won't hold back with the original trilogy when it comes to spoilers, which I think right. in part is is very fair because even if you haven't read the original trilogy, if you read Best Served Cold, Abercrombie doesn't hold back right. with spoilers about things that have happened in the new in the original trilogy really either so we're gonna treat it with that way a so first law trilogy that is the blade itself before their hang last argument of kings and then best serve cold those things will have spoilers in this episode but we will not spoil beyond that, especially because Charles hasn't read beyond <laughs> know, uh, Best Served Cold yet. Best of, this is my second read of Best Served Cold. And once we get through this, in our next episode we do Best Served Cold, it is the Wild West for me. I'm so excited yes. to get into the Especially Red Country, Red Country will be the Wild West. Yeah. Because it is Red Country oh. as a Western will be the Wild oh, West for you, Charles. But... All right, let's uh, know for... Oh, I forgot to say. So turn it down in your headphones. There if we you go. That would have been a bummer have if we not missed yet that. Read Best Served Cold. <laughs> yeah, it would have been a bummer. But let's get into this, Charles. We've had them wait long enough. I think that it's time to get into this. Yes, uh, let's get into it right away. So Best Served Cold, as the name implies, is a revenge story. And mm-hmm. th- the need for this revenge comes the the inciting incident comes right here it's like abercrombie hits you with it right at the beginning we have monza our main character and her brother benna or benner however you say it visit benna Benna, and visit their employer the grand duke orso of talons and they are betrayed they are stabbed strangled thrown off a mountain and that is uh that is what starts this whole thing off because Manza survives, doesn't she, Dylan? She does survive. And my first read and in subsequent reads too, this has always made me think about Kill Bill. Yeah. Does that ever come up for you? It is very skills? it is very Kill Bill-esque, I agree. Yeah, but this moment, it goes to show what I view as Jarber Crombie's growth as an author here, because he just gets right into it where the, we love the blade itself. And the biggest complaint that we usually hear from folks about the blade itself is it just hardly anything happens in the whole book, which we're fine with because we love spending time with the characters. But I think that here we immediately get grounded in not just incredible characters with monza right off the bat and these other interesting folks that we don't know a ton about yet at this point in the story but the stakes are very clear very immediately and it's a brutal scene and absolutely horrible stuff that happens to monza but it's this interesting chapter where uh, basically benna the chapter is called i think Benas Bena McCart sorry Bena Mercato saves a life I think is what the chapter is called something mm-hmm. of that nature right and the way and so it's classic Abercrombie that he calls it Bena Mercato saves a life and then the way that Bena saves her life is that he basically makes her fall like what's the right word for it like uh, helps uh, make her fall not. God, what's the word for that, Charles? Breaks uh, her fall? 
breaks her fall. Yes, breaks her fall with his body. <laughs> with his body. And it's absolutely brutal. And we immediately see a character who seemed like they had everything at the start of the story. This incredible commander in Monza. And she has this close relationship with Benna. And that's all taken away from her at once. That's right. I... You know you're getting into a revenge story, but in some ways, you I still kind of felt unprepared for this moment when it happens, you know, mm. because there, it's just the severity in which this book goes from zero to 100 with its violence sometimes. I just am so fascinated by because this whole story is about like the price of revenge, the cost of revenge, is revenge worth it, and, and things like that. So when you... When it gets to the points where it gets violent, it almost gets very serious. And in some cases, it inspires the character. And in some cases, it like scares them. And it's interesting to see how these peak moments of violence happen throughout the series. And how Monza's um, character changes and other characters that we get along the way change. And this is the first one. And it plays out in a very traditional way, which I believe is a very calculated way because we want to buy into Monza on her quest for revenge at the beginning of this story. Yeah. And it is well earned here. We get to watch her, you know, watch her brother get murdered in front of her eyes, the only family she's ever had and the only person she's ever loved, really. And then she's getting betrayed by her employer she had everything like you said she had a giant beautiful jewel and family and a prestige and now it's all gone and she's left recovering with what is his name at this moment is it the bone thief the bone man? oh yeah well we we can spoil who that is it's yes. shanked right yes. so yeah so we don't have to hold back but it is at this point, we have no idea who this character is. He just seems like some sort of mad scientist that is into the idea of fixing up Monza for, we have, it just seems like he enjoys it. Uh, he's getting a kick out of this idea, and he's interested in the idea that she's alive and likes the idea of almost experimenting on her to see if he can revive her, and he's able to pull it off. It's a very strange uh scene but yeah it's it's almost like in the context of yeah yeah it's almost like a fever dream kind of moment in this book where she's with this guy and this guy's like explaining all the stuff that he's done to her and is pointing around it's kind of funny i i I almost read this like it was an old man you know poking around and and, yeah and describing it like all the things that he changed for her and it it's so much fun but my my favorite piece about all of this is that monza just First chance she gets, she escapes and she just leaves, yes. and we never see this guy again. And that's something well, I was like, well, for a, no, for that a we know of. Yeah, I mean, he comes like, back in a reveal moment, but yes, <laughs> the point is he's that character's written out of history, and, and she's off on her own adventure and doesn't even give him another iota of thought. Basically, it's like, well, thanks for nothing. Like, thanks for nothing. I'm out of here. And she bails and never thinks about him again, too. It's very interesting. But uh, yeah, I just love that moment and that decision. And it speaks to Monza's character and it speaks to Abercrombie's tone that he's setting in this world of like, you don't need to like hang out just because this guy healed you. Like you're healed now. You could leave if you wanted to. And I just think that that's such a fun, like grim, dark kind of subversive moment that speaks true to Monza's character. 
Yeah, Charles, I I completely agree. I've said a lot of times that one of my favorite character traits is when folks are extremely proactive. Right. And that's something I love about Moms as a character is she very quickly, when she's in this situation, is like, okay, well, I don't want to be experimented on by some dude who's getting his jollies out of putting a coin in my head. So as soon as I have any opportunity to escape, I will take that opportunity, even if it means crawling, even if it means the most pain that I have ever experienced before in my life, I'm going to get the hell out of here. And immediately we're we're ground in this idea of Mons as a character who we understand how she's the kind of person who was able to rise to the position that we knew she had such a an impressive uh, mercenary leader right and it's yeah it, it i i just think Mons is an interesting character as we go through this but as we see her right now she's very much filling this role of she's angry she's up for revenge she's relentless she can't be stopped and she's got these seven men in her brain and she's going out for revenge so that's a perfect way to kick this whole story off and that leads us you know uh pan out and we are now brought over to talons we see shivers in the gutter trying to find intent on finding well he starts off a little well, he starts. He's not in the gutter right at the start. He's kind of coming with a little bit more of this, like, "Hey, I'm here. I'm going to be a good man. I've heard such good <laughs> things about this." And this, Charles Shivers, in this is—he's such an interesting character, especially after all the conversations that we've had about Logan Nine Fingers, where yes. this idea of just the the Northman with a bloody past, ready to try to be a good man. Yeah. It's like we've oh, heard Lapper this Crombie. <laughs> we've yes, we've heard this story before, and he takes it in such a totally different direction with shivers here that we'll we'll get into it a lot more. But just like from the start, where you start hearing shivers telling himself this story about how he's going to be a good man now and right. turn his life around and leave blood behind him. It's like, oh, we are in for yeah. it with this one, aren't we, Joe? <laughs> Shiver has, <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Shivers yeah. has no idea what kind of story he's in. It's such a shame. <laughs> but, uh, no, I. It, it was an interesting move to pick Shivers to, to insert yeah. in this story, but I think it pays off so well and it contrasts with Monza so well, and we're going to get into that more as the plot progresses. But yep. for right now, Monza recruits Shivers to yeah. help Oh, her. Charles. Yes. You know where else we'll get into it a little what? bit more about Shivers is in our upcoming shivers character profile from oh. the cold that yeah we'll do a few of these so <laughs> i see you might hear us say yes, yes. yeah we yes. love doing our you so. know abercrombie so masterful at writing characters we've had so much fun going through the first law series character by character in our character series and we hope to continue that with best serve cold and the, the two characters that you gotta do are Monza and Shivers, and then we might pepper in a few more along the way. Just because... Dude, Casca. Yeah. You gotta do Casca. I think we have I, enough I have to so do Casca. I have so much Kaska. to say. Yeah. Oh, Charles, I could... <laughs> 
I, I feel like you would have a lot to say about Casca that I'd be very interested in. And I, I could probably talk myself, too, for an hour about Casca. So, it, dude, he's so every he's the character I appreciated even more on the rereads. I just think he's got. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Like and I, I appreciate him right away. I'm just I think you I think Shiver Shivers might have been my favorite character the first time I read this. And he's kind of teed up to be at first this like good man like trying his best type thing and he's supposed to feel like the protagonist i think in that way and as along for that ride but now when i reread it i'm like dude i casca is freaking (laughs) unbelievable so anyway and has like a real arc which is hard to it's not as clear-cut as monza and uh, I think there'd be a lot to get into, but right. and there's also a yeah. lot. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, my one piece I'll say about Casca before we get back to the plot is a two parter. After all, we have time to, to, yeah. to, to go astray is that, uh, with Casca, I can't tell you how many like TV shows and books I read where they have like, and this is the whimsical rogue character. And you just want to roll your eyes and be like, Oh my God, kill me now. This character is like so embarrassing. Like they're just saying, things that like a clever roguish person would say and that's like the extent of their character with Casca, he's very he's just as grandiose as those characters but then we weave in these more Charles. more and we just weave in these moments of character work that are very surprising and greatly appreciated in the reread so i'm happy to to get into those as we go but the first thing we got to do is get through this whole Shiver Monza's meat cute situation, yes. but not really. Meat cute <laughs> is generous for... Yes, yeah, so I think it's funny to call it that, Charles. <laughs> and yeah, it's generous for these two because in just clear Abercrombie fashion, there's not really anything cute about their interaction. It's just that Monza sees a killer. She needs a killer. You're hired. Right. It's one of Mons's gifts that she can just kind of identify the needs of other people and leverage those in negotiations and convince people to do things. And uh, she she sees right. She sees the potential and shivers right away, even though he's pretty yeah. much a, a beggar at this point. Yeah, she um, recognizes him as someone that she could use. And that's how Monza recruits shivers. They go on to meet Sajam, who then... You know, loans them uh, the assistance of Friendly, and Friendly yeah. joins the fray. Thoughts on Friendly, Charles? I'm entertained by Friendly. I think he's fun. Um, you know, would I do a whole character series episode dedicated to him? <laughs> no. But do I get a kick out of him when he's talking? Yes. <laughs> I love his relationship with Casca. We'll get into that more. I think that's where Friendly really starts to shine is when we start seeing him with Casca where they kind of each have something that the other one lacks. There's a great quote from Casca at one point about that that we won't get into now. But Friendly is interesting. He sees things through such a detached lens that sometimes he does have these moments, I think where he just like sees things for what they are. Cause he's not trying to tell himself a story about it. Mm-hmm. I think that's so much of what this book is about is that people tell themselves stories about who they are. And I think that to bring us back here, Charles to the Monza and 
Shivers interaction that's going on around this time is there's this great quote about kind of like telling yourself stories and giving yourself excuses and things like that where Monza's recruiting him that mm. I'd love to read. Yeah, let's uh, hear it. You're, yeah. So the, Monza says, so you're one of them, eh? And Shiver says, one of what? One of those men that like reasons, that need excuses. You're a dangerous crowd, you lot. Hard to predict. She shrugged. But if it helps, he killed my brother. That's to justify why why she's hiring Shivers to kill someone. And then we get the Shivers prose where Shivers is like thinking about how he had a brother who was killed by none other than Logan the Bloody Nine, Nine Fingers. And there's a line in the prose, he killed my brother. Felt as if he would have said no to anything else. But maybe he just needed the money. And he takes it. He takes the (laughs) job. He takes the money. And we've got a lot of buildup of Shivers kind of in the gutter and in this rough situation and trying really hard to be a good man and it's not paying off. But this is where we start moving toward this Shivers arc of like mirroring some of those Logan Nine Fingers type things about, well you know, anything else, I wouldn't have done it. But it's a brother revenge story. And that's so important to me, Shivers. And it's easy to buy in because we know, especially if we've read the first Law Trilogy, which you and I have, then we're like, yes, Shivers, that was Shivers' arc in the original trilogy in so many ways, was trying to deal with the fact that Logan killed his brother. And the weird thing is that Shivers had walked away from the chance for vengeance multiple times already with Logan. So then you see him walking back toward it. And this line of, but maybe he just needed the money is like, Shivers, are we really buying in that you're so (laughs) sold on the idea of trying to help someone else with their revenge on someone's brother when you've already turned away the opportunity to get revenge for your own brother with Logan? So I think that's why... It's easy to buy in, and I bought in on my first read for sure on this. And then later I was looking at this line. I was like, I think he just needed the money. Yeah, Yeah, he was tired of being broke, of course. And we know from the end of this book there's a reveal that Shivers hated his brother and that his brother was never nice to him and was abusive and all that. And that is a fun twist as well that parallels Mons' story. Fun's interesting. <laughs> well, <laughs> I get what you're saying, though, Charles. I mean, yeah. this is, for Abercrombie, it's fun. He This is how yes. Abercrombie has fun, okay? He, he, he <laughs> this twists. is how he has fun. <laughs> That's well said, when, Charles. When he's writing these stories, well this is how Abercrombie has fun. He <laughs> makes the brother that was the whole inciting incident for him to join <laughs> be a horrible, abusive person, and so it just kind of reveals shivers like because Shivers at the end of this just drops all pretense and is brutally honest with himself and doesn't care anymore. So he's like, yeah, he, he kind of sucked. And I, you push him back on? I, I think that's complicated. I think it's complicated whether Shivers is being honest with himself or not by the end of it. But let's save that for our wonderful Shivers character profile that's coming up later. It's, it's complicated. I think it's a conversation to be had. Right. I'm not so, saying it's not true. Anyway, we get back to the plot. Okay, we're paralleling Shiver's brother with Monza's, and that's why they get all buddy-buddy. It's an interesting idea that unravels as this book goes on, but it's kind of fun to be like, oh, yeah, because that whole original trilogy with Shiver's was about vengeance for his brother and working with Logan Ninefingers, and he was trying to be a better man. You know, he was trying to 
walk away from all the blood and like the dog man told him to like the dog man told him to and and that's you know the what we think of of shivers at this point and that brings us to our first like kill on the list kill bill style yeah. we the first list we have we have gaba <laughs> <laughs> and gaba's an interesting one to start with because he just seems like a brutish thug in a lot of ways and i think that abercrombie's very deliberate it seems with the order of the people he gives you and the first thing he wants you to see is a person who i think he if i'm remembering correctly talked about wanting to sexually assault monza when he they were in the process of throwing her out the window so if you're remembering that, which it's hard to track what all seven of those people were doing that you just met. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that Gaba, yeah, like was talking about wanting to sexually assault her. So you're thinking this is a vile person in a lot of ways. And you're a lot, you're a lot easier down the road or it's a lot easier to go down the road of like, this guy deserves it and not feel terribly bad. But there is a little bit of a feeling of, something's off when Monza is just super underwhelmed by the kill at the end of it. But also even we, again, I'm talking about these peaks of violence and this is another one where it goes heavy into the description. Monza's breaking this guy's body apart with a hammer piece by piece, little piece by little piece until she eventually finally just like unrelentingly crushes him with a hammer repeatedly to till he dies and it's it, mm. it's one of the many shocking uh deaths in, in this in this book and it it comes back to this revenge it's right it's almost like Abercrombie wants you to want that moment right it was like oh this is such a this is a victory yes. for Monza like we're yeah this is a horrible person they killed her brother yeah. she's getting revenge and then you end up just feeling a little sick afterwards and a bit mm-hmm. underwhelmed and you're dealing with like well, I okay uh, this was the victory i wanted but why do i feel uncomfortable in these moments and everyone in the yes. room is kind of uncomfortable at what just happened they're all just like whoa that was a bit much and it's just a beautiful environment that Abercrombie was able to create in this scene well said charles yeah i think that's an important piece that we don't want to miss out on is i do believe that Abercrombie is intentional about making the scene gross and yes making the scene something that makes the reader feel somewhat disgusted and i appreciate you pointing that out because we want to almost have follow monza's journey with it where Mm -hmm. monza thinks this is what she wants so badly it's what she quote unquote should want right Mm -hmm. you just killed my brother he was my everything yeah and now i want to kill you for it right isn't that something i'm supposed to want after this happens aren't i the serpent of talents who's supposed to be brutal and she's playing this role uh, and doing all this stuff and by the end of it she's just like what the hell was that yeah but it's a it's just a little bit of a feeling right now for her and and for us as readers i think right and i believe shivers is taking the point of like you got your revenge how does it feel like you know like he's got it all figured out and she doesn't you know (laughs) and 
uh, which we know that that position flip flops constantly throughout this book. But it's again, this conversation around revenge and vengeance and, and blood getting more blood and all of this. And it's the start of it. This is a pretty familiar theme of like, is the pursuit of revenge. And as we get further down the list on our way to Orso, it, it becomes a lot more complicated mm. and interesting. So that's Gaba first off the list. A nice, nice way to nice way to kick us off with a bludgeon death. <laughs> Oof. Well, we're used to them with Glockta. Uh, well, maybe not deaths usually with him, but we're used yeah. to some of these brutal scenes with Glockta in the original trilogy. So right, right. He did something very similar. He like would like yeah. chop off the dude's like fingertips and then yeah. was going down his hand and yeah, that was uh reminiscent of that for certain. Right. And so after our first name is off the list, we're we're trying to go on and kill Malthus the banker. But before we can do that, we need to recruit someone, a master poisoner by the name of Castor Morvir and his apprentice, Day. Dylan, what are we thinking about Castor Morvir? Castor Morvir is one of, in my reading experiences, the most easy-to-hate characters (laughs) I've ever read. I mean, at least as, like, point of view, right? So take it out of the, like clear villain characters that are like dark lords that of course they're just awful people but for a more regular and point of view character i mean point of view characters i feel like as readers we're naturally inclined toward wanting to like them when we get into their perspective and hear how they think about themselves especially when they think about themselves as being a decent person and trying their best mm-hmm. and Morvir does think about himself not just to being a decent person but being an incredible person <laughs> just what and this is it's so interesting because I think about comparing Morvir to Casca is a big thing that I've yeah. wanted to do because they're both they both have these narcissistic type tendencies I would say Morvir way more than Casca for sure yeah but Casca loves blowing himself up and talking about how amazing he is and all the incredible things he's done and we eat it all up just like all the characters do in around him he's just got this charisma in the way that he does it and morvir is kind of doing the same thing right he's he thinks of himself as this unbelievable master poisoner in all these ways he tells himself that story too and i think and i imagine charles yeah I imagine you're not a big Morvir fanboy over there. I imagine you I, had something of a similar reaction. I, I find him highly entertaining, yes. but I'm yes. not a fanboy. I, I think he's a character that's fun. It's it's played up. It's a perform. You know, it's um a, a fun role. This idea of a poisoner. It, it's a bit more. It, it gets a little silly sometimes with Morvir, and I think that's really funny. But yeah, he he's not likable by any means. Right, and I guess to bring it back, uh, when I say a character that is very easy to hate, I mean as a person oh, yeah, rather yeah, yeah, than yeah. as a. I actually think the the Morvir portrayal is something that I was also very entertained and and I guess intrigued by because I see him as 
as in a lot of ways, this subversion of these roguish characters I love so much. Like both him and Casca have these roguish qualities and you get to see Abercrombie, again, I'll use the word deliberate. Like he deliberately wants you to see Morvir as this like, why are you doing all this stuff? There's that moment where they like have to get entry into a city and Morvir is like, I'm going to be so clever. I'm going to tell this guard. They're like, what this bored guard is like, what's your business in the city? And Morvir is like, murder! And it's supposed to be, like, in Morvir's head, it's like this, oh, look how clever I am. Like, I can say murder and we'll still get in anyway. And it's like, dude, you just made everything harder for everyone around you. And you did it just so you could look clever. And I feel like in a lot of ways that's a subversion of this like I'm cleverer than everyone master plan type like ever I've one of my favorite characters ever is Locke Lamora from the lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch from the what <laughs> oh god Charles <laughs> I, it's like you want people to get on you about that so uh, th- he's kind of this like roguish mastermind character and he's always saying clever things, all this kind of stuff. And I feel like Morvir is almost like Abercrombie looking at characters like that. And it's like you're you're being clever at the cost of your own well-being and other people's hmm. well-being too, and making everything harder for yourself by this need to be clever. And it's just that that makes him such an intriguing character. But I think the reason that he's easy to hate, while Casca's easy to love, to bring it back to that point, because it's really interesting to me as two roguish types is i think more veer's lack of self-awareness and abercrombie when abercrombie writes a character that lacks self-awareness the prose just just brutally taunts them right (laughs) like he kind of did this with jizal in the first law trilogy we point out some of these like like the adverbs like jizal became dimly aware of this and it's like abercrombie brutally taunting prose is a brilliant uh, it's a brilliant observation dylan it's so true with Morvir, it's like you (laughs) it's very similar so i think those that lack of self-awareness is what makes him so easy to hate because it's like it's okay to do things wrong and blow yourself up and all this kind of stuff. But you actually aren't all those things. Right. You aren't the nicest, most generous person ever. Right. So that's that's probably more more veer talk than you're uh, maybe hoping for or <laughs> expecting. But he's, I don't know, It's he's not like any other character, I feel like. Because it's like Costco, you could be like, he's kind of like Jack Sparrow in some ways. Different yeah. in other ways. But you see that. Morvir, it's like, who's he like besides kind of a subversion of these mastermind types and right yeah. and these like science types? He's he's, I think another part of what makes him so unlikable is that, like the decision, like the his just blatant disregard for like humanity and for other people as well. Like he immediately poisons everyone in the room when they try and meet him. He immediately paralyzes all of them. He's like, yeah, you can't be too careful. And everyone's like, well, we all instantly (laughs) hate you now. (laughs) Yes. I'm trying to, I'm trying to um, channel Stephen Pacey's performance. I love when you do that, Charles. (laughs) He's very like, your voices are great. Yes. Well, it's from hours of listening to Pacey. So his his portrayals, the the creative direction he chooses to take Morvir is almost like a snivelly kind of 
oh, I'm an intelligent man. Hmm. You know, like, yeah. he's, he's like, I will poison everyone with the most perfect poison. You're like, okay, that's cool. So already people don't like him. And you can easily understand why when one of the first things he does is prove that he's a not trustworthy man by paralyzing all of them. So yeah. that was that's Castor Morvir. And I think the more we oh, learn one about more thing. him. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think another bit is that it's like Joe Abercrombie thinking to himself, what kind of person becomes a poisoner for their career? Yeah. not a great person probably so i think that's part of what's going on i won't go into detail about that now but yeah that's well yeah. said that's well said and i i love all the poison shenanigans that get on in this book you know this yeah. book more than first law reads to me just like a a book that's willing to be like fun for fun's sake like Sometimes the mm. violence is a bit gratuitous just because it's fun sometimes to, to have violence, you know, and like these crazy shenanigans they get to, into with poison, some of the dialogue from Casca, you like, you feel he's like hamming it oh, up so a little good. bit sometimes just to, and just for the pure purpose of entertainment. And I appreciate that about Best Served Cold. I feel like Best Served Cold as a standalone serves to entertain just as much as it serves to subvert the genre or give us great characters like the first law trilogy did you know he's he is still trying to make points and and have a thesis and all this but he's also just willing to sit back and have fun as well and that's you know how this book stands out to me in the library of abercrombie that i've read right i would agree with that charles and i was reading there's this little interview at the end of my paperback that They asked Abercrombie about some of his inspiration for it and that kind of stuff. And I think he used the word thriller to yeah. describe Best Serve Cold, which was interesting to me. I don't think I'd read it before the last few days. And I'd read Best Serve Cold, you know, a few times. I'd never really thought of it as a thriller. But when I heard that, I was like, oh, yeah, like, I guess I could see that. I guess a thriller, I think, is a little more nonstop and a little less of the time to focus on the characters and the dialogue, which which is something I adore about Abercrombie's work. It's why we're it's why we spend so much time talking about him and we talk about him as one of our clear favorite authors. Right. And but yeah, I guess by Abercrombie standards, this was like. Boom, 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 boom. Like, we're not going to spend time and just process, or not process, but like dialogue and engage with characters, even though there's still a ton of that in this book. So it finds that balance of still having that Abercrombie charm while the plot is freaking moving. Yeah. It's, It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, the plot moves fast, and there's a lot it has to get through. So, yeah. <laughs> to to try and channel that energy, we'll 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 keep this going. We're gonna seg. we're gonna keep going here. <laughs> nice we got choice. thank you. We got Valent and Bach here. Right, we're trying to poison one mm. of their bankers, Malthus, and the way that <laughs> Morvir decides he's going to execute on this is to poison oh my God. the entire bank. He's like, well, you can't just figure out which one he's going to touch, so you have to get all of them. It's the it's the only way you can be sure. And uh, what what's his um, caution first always? You know, yes, like that's caution. His... <laughs> and then Day in the Stephen Pacey audiobook narrations, caution first. Always. Yeah, like she's got this really high pitched. Yeah, yeah. she parrots oh. him. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I, I love that she's always eating something too. I can That's appreciate that. Yeah, but anyway, Which, <laughs> bad idea around Caster Morvir. Yeah, to always be eating something, but yeah, just yeah. to be so like uninspiringly, just like dumbly eating something in the background of a meeting constantly. It's kind of funny. It's like oh, she won't stop chewing. It's like annoying, <laughs> but uh, it's an interesting little character thing for day. But I just love this this bank scene so much and they had this whole heist thing to get in and he like was dripping acid on the rope which oh almost broke and he almost died <laughs> like all these they were making he was making was fun of shivers uh yeah, that whole thing as well and a bunch of different dynamics going on there but it's more for the purpose of entertainment than plot so we'll we'll get to the juicy bits which is where they poison literally every ledger in the bank right and oh it causes a stampede and it kills yes. tons of people and and monza is not happy yeah and that's something that is very likable or at least as as these really morally gray characters go in abercrombie's work uh, that's something likable about monza that she she really despises that Morvir let all this collateral damage happen. She is pissed at him. And she just really, she you can tell she's trying to keep up this guard of like, I have to be hard. I have to be the serpent of talents, all this kind of stuff. And she's making all these justifications as to why she's mad about it. It's like, oh no, like more stuff is bringing more attention and things like that. Like more kills is bringing more attention. But she's just pissed because I think she cares about about the people. And Morvir, blatant disregard for the people in this bank. Absolutely. And he's actually, even speaking so true to his character, he's kind of surprised at Monza's reaction. He's like, what are you talking about? You hired me to kill this guy and I just did it and no one knows it's us and no one can tell it was him. And like, it was brilliant. It's what you wanted. And aren't you the infamous, like, you know, butcher of talent. Serpent, yeah. Um, serpent, yeah. Butcher of Capril. Serpent butcher of, of Capril. Thank you. I couldn't yeah. get the Witcher out of my head. The Butcher of Blaviken. <laughs> yeah. Like, was I saying Snake of Talons? Yeah, you yeah, were. It's in my head. Serpent yes. of Talons. Butcher uh, of Capril. I think is is. That sounds right. So it's like, given your reputation, yeah. you'd think you'd be cool with this. And then we know through flashbacks as this book goes on that she, her hand was forced by Benna the entire time over and, she, and over again so she yeah. never even really felt that way she was almost kind of um backing up uh Benna's decisions which is such a great reveal like the, I'm not usually a yes. huge like let's flashback and force why you should be empathetic towards this character over and I'm like eh, can't we just get that in the story but these moments were fun because it twists are how we remember Benna. You know, it's like, oh, Benna was, he was so, and he wasn't a fighter and he got stabbed and killed. It was so unfair, you know? Yeah. And, and then you're like, Poor oh, Benna. actually. And he's charming. Yeah, he's charming. He's, he's so buying her nice stuff. Yeah. And Monza loves him. So it's like, okay, well, poor Benna, you know, he's too, too innocent for this world. You know, he, he was too soft. <laughs> but Charles, but Casca is constantly telling us throughout the story. It's not even like a reveal if you listen to Casca. The whole story, Casca is like, oh, no, your brother is an awful dude. And it's one of these ways in which Abercrombie, I think, 
uses his characters so well where it's like you can't trust anything that Casca says Casca says whatever he wants to get the things that he is looking to get out of this conversation but it's actually if you focus on Casca's dialogue he there's a ton of truth that he's always dropping and one of them is he's always saying just how bad a person Benna was uh, so it's an interesting one. You you feel like maybe he's like in love with Monza and there's yeah. all these these there's hints and it's almost like pretty explicitly said a few times before it is explicitly said it, uh, that she that her her and her brother were lovers and you get the sense maybe Casca is super jealous of her uh mm-hmm. brother uh, and all that but he yeah he was dropping truths yeah, and he's also, you know, Casca is just as unsavory as the rest, but it's an in, it's uh, in his own way, but it is in a way. But we'll we, get into we'll it. We'll get into it, but that's the and what's been led up. Everyone Casca tells episode. him that he can't be trusted and that he's betrayed everybody, and you know all those kinds of things. But it's in the ways he chooses to do it or not do it that are interesting. Uh, but we can get into that later because another fun character from the first law trilogy enters the fray, and that's Shiloh Vitari and yeah. Arlo's lover Carla Den Eider. We we find out oh, what Charles. has become of Carla. Yes, I think back in the. Around the bank situation, Monza and Shivers get together for the first time, right? Yes, they do right. get together. Yeah. So we get I think it's the way Malcolm like sex falls. Scenes. Yeah, we get a great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, great. And it's all Abercrombie sex scenes just are so honest. I think and <laughs> they're this so is awkward one. and painful too. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's true to the, it's again, kind of like the Pharaoh and Logan Nine Fingers one. This one's not that awkward, (laughs) but it just feels like, I don't know, they're both looking for, basically, Monza's looking for a surrogate for Benna just to take his place. She's even murmuring Benna's name under her breath, uh, like in her sleep and stuff like that, or as she's waking up. And Shivers is, you know, un unbeknownst to shivers shivers is having trouble connecting those dots but shivers barely knows her and they're just kind of like okay well it's just the two of us here you just got a haircut recently (laughs) that's monster shivers like you're looking okay you're looking pretty good and shivers thinks that about oh Monza, and then they have sex but it's not that there's this deep chemistry between them they have some banter yeah. and something going but i don't know it's just this happens sometimes between yeah. two folks who are attracted to each other <laughs> so it's not going to be yeah. this epic love like uh, moment that we get in some other stories it's right just and then what it um is. and then uh mons uh not monza um Morvir like yeah. falls through the window or through the ceiling or something and is personally offended. <laughs> it's, it's like a. It's a. That's funny. his default state. Yeah. Is personally offended. <laughs> it's like he's the one that barged in. I don't know, but it, it's it was funny of of all the people to to witness <laughs> the that, last person you want to see. Yeah, he would be the most offended of them all. So that is <laughs> hilarious. So that. True, it's funny. And then we finally get to Vitari and Carla Dan Eider. Yes. We get some flashbacks or, or, you know, some reminiscing of the first Law trilogy here with these characters. They have uh, 
gone in new directions. Yeah, they uh, Vitari is not a practical anymore. Carla Denider is not the head of the Guild of Spicers anymore. Nope. <laughs> they are in very different roles, and it's interesting to see them. And Carla's like keeps referring to the cripple and things like that, which is very fun. It reminds me of when I was thinking of this when I was reading this, where Carla's like, "The cripple will kill me." It's like when Netflix did the Marvel shows, but they couldn't say like the Incredible Hulk for copyright reasons, and they were like, "Oh, the Green Man and the guy with the shield are going to come out here." Yeah, and, you know, it's like, "Oh, it's the cripple." You know, it's this like extended universe thing going on that i thought was really funny because we know now the way that uh first law played out glocked is basically like controlling the union on behalf of bias so he's incredibly right. powerful and carla's in fear of him now and basically doing what he says which has come a long way from before they're hanged yeah we've definitely come a long way and <laughs> vitari and carla I mean, Vitari was choking out Carlot maybe the last time they saw each other. So yeah. that's a tough reunion. And it's very interesting. You get these Easter egg moments by reading. The standalones do, well, stand the, alone, right? Oh, you said You it. could just read this. <laughs> I just couldn't think of a better way to say it. They, they tell a complete story in themselves, but you get these Easter eggs by having read earlier and you do get those moments as a funny comparison to the like marvel tv shows where yeah. they can't use the name of course yeah. Abercrombie could use the name yeah. but yeah i don't think he says the word glockta at any point and i guess that's part of him trying to say hey we know i know you love glockta but this story is not about him he's yeah. in the world he's still doing stuff but like don't get caught up on this and you're not gonna see him in this story i think is part of what he was trying to say like yeah this isn't gonna be about glockta <laughs> we know you might want it to be Yep, I wouldn't mind seeing Glockta. We did yeah. get to see one of the characters yes. which we'll get into yes, we later, did. but we're not quite there yet. I just wanted to mm-hmm. tease that one because I love that scene. <laughs> I love Oh, oh my God. so that 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 character, which you all know, but we won't say because it's fun not to say it. Uh so we'll talk about him later. But for right now, they're cooking up this plan. They've enlisted Carla Dan Eider to give them control over the entertainment at Cardotti's House of Leisure, which, great name, by the way, Cardotti's. Yeah, Leisure. <laughs> oh, and Leisure, yeah. Yeah, that's a so, Cardotti's House of Leisure, I love it. And they, of all people, Casca is in charge of hiring the entertainment, and we know what kind of people Casca <laughs> finds entertaining. <laughs> yeah, well, I think he's well-equipped because they needed a band of folks who could also wield weapons and i trust casca to do that i oh can we also talk about casca the casca introduction that we just get this point of view chapter from casca where he's he's we talked about shivers being in the gutter casca's in the gutter too and yeah you know we we know famed soldier of fortune nicomo casca has had some really amazing experiences experiences in his life or at least impressive experiences in his life and he's just reached a point at the beginning of this story where he he's just down on his luck might be generous to call it luck because he's it's been all the drinking and not taking 
control of his own life and pursuing things that are worthwhile to him. He's just lost. And then Monza, the person who betrayed him, comes out of nowhere and asks him to help. And now he's helping with this this entertainment hiring. And I, I don't know. It's up to it's up to interpretation how good a job he did. I guess he got the job done. <laughs> uh, yeah, it probably would have gone over much better, but you can't predict, you know, Friendly's behavior in those scenes. But I, <laughs> I do love Casca playing into the role so well and hiring the band. Yeah. And the band sounds terrible, but he's like, oh, sweet, sweet music. You guys are really sensitive souls. <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> just, okay. No regard for <laughs> yeah. the truth. Yeah, none. <laughs> And he's just like willing these performers into existence. And then he's got the fire breather and Shivers is like, that dude's going to kill all of us. He's like, yeah, he's yes. perfect for the role. Very entertaining. <laughs> and, you know, it's he, he gets into all of it. They hire another Northman to recreate the battle of uh-huh. Logan versus the feared, which is hilarious. And, and Shivers plays the role of Logan, which is very funny as well. I just, yeah, that was just kind of silly. <laughs> well, I actually don't think it's just silly. Like I think of that as almost this dare I say like capital L literature type moment for me mm. where it's like Shivers is cast in the Logan role in this best served cold story for me. He's cast in the role of the Northman telling himself a story about how he's going to try to be a good man. So in classic Abercrombie fashion, I think there's an awareness of the idea that, oh, like... This is the this is the Logan of this story. So why don't we just dress him up like Logan and have him uh, play out that whole scene with the fear that you love so much? It almost reminds me of in the original First Law trilogy where he gets Baez all dressed up in the wizard garb and things like that because it's like, yeah, like is this what you want to see? Like I know what you want to see, and I don't know. I I think that that's. I think that was intentional. Maybe I'm looking too much into it. And you've you've critiqued me for that in the past (laughs) on episodes. But that's how I think about this moment is he's cast in the role in it's like a meta moment for me. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely a meta moment. And of all peoples that Schiffer has a complicated past with Logan is is one of them. And being forced to (laughs) embrace that by playing him in a play is is uh, a, a delightful little twist there by Abercrombie. And the fact that that turned into another revenge story uh, oh, is yeah. funny as well. But I, I guess we're at that moment, right? Well, because yeah, where Kadati's turns upside down. <laughs> but, uh, but I guess <laughs> not actually right before that, you know, the thing we teased before. Who like uh, Monza has this whole plan? She's gonna dress up like you know one of the entertainers and get a private room with uh, with what's his face there, the son. And <clears throat> he was going. She was going to. Is that Ario? Yes, Ario, I believe. Uh, Ario I, or I Foscar, so. one of them, and. And uh, I'll double check, but yeah. Anyway, so who shows up? But the character that can't help but 
screw things up or not understand his role and all of this. And that is just all Dan Luther. (laughs) He finds himself in these really critical situations, always (laughs) clueless though. He's like so unbelievably clueless at every moment, yet he's in these quintessentially important moments in the story. And it's such a delightful character balance. So when you see him, you're like, Oh my God, the, the, the character they pulled off the A tier list, you know, from first law and, and chose to bring into the story. You know, again, like a Marvel movie, it's like, okay, like we might have, you know, Spider-Man might, might swing in to this movie for five minutes and leave to, you know, keep the fans and the and the extended universe going. That's what we're getting with, with Chazal yeah. right now. It's like, ooh, they got Chazal for this. That's kind of spicy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like the cameo. Yeah. It's yeah. like Robert Downey Jr. appears just for a moment in Spider-Man and you're like, ooh. Yeah. So, yeah. Exactly. yeah I <laughs> It's like, oh look! I know, I know, he's not gonna be in the whole thing, but it's cool seeing him. It's cool that they got him. Yeah. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So, okay, there's a moment leading up to that where Vitari comments on the fact that Jazal is coming to actually try to make peace and help out, which is so like Jazal going about his life trying to just be a good king, but she says. Like no one else, no one in Styria is taking it seriously. (laughs) And she's, it's like a foggy city is part of it too. And she says, the only man who's come here hoping for anything but fog is his august majesty. But they say he's got a talent for (laughs) self-deception. Oh, burned. (laughs) A talent for self-deception. Yeah. So he's in there. Yeah, he's in. He's in the scene. He gets a scene with Monza. Yeah, Charles. Yeah, it's a fun scene because he's like, "Oh, I, I'm like, I'm not, I've oh. done this before," and, and she's like, "What the heck am I supposed to do right now?" Because he was not. Because like, am I supposed to play this out or what? Like, if I don't go through with it, then I'll get discovered. If I do go through with it, then I'll have to go through with it, which is also horrible. And it's this fun scenario where you're like, what is she going to do? Fun. And fun and like, again, this is how Abercrombie has fun, okay? It, it's, okay. It's fun. It's, it's not a the day. first word that comes to my mind. It's... I just all keeps ending up... Charles. Just all keeps ending up in these situations with... Like trying to have sex with someone who just is not on the same page with him yeah. at all about what the goal of the interaction is with him. This one's not like, I don't know, it's really almost like sickening and I think intentionally so in the first Law trilogy when he has that moment with Therese. Yeah, this one scene is not crazy. like that, but it's like, <laughs> it's like this just, I feel for Giselle because he's he's just consistently stuck in his self-deception and he it's not even self-deception no in this case like if he if he knew what the was going sure, on sure sure he That's would fair. not go through with it same with therese but, but he yeah, yeah. is so clueless that he's his only self-deception is that he would think that someone like Therese will all of a sudden love him now. And it's like, oh, she does love me. And I believe that right now. And that's fine. Finally. And it's like, that is self-deception. But he, he, it's his 
also just his pure cluelessness, and that's where he is right now. And Manza's solution to the whole thing is to get high, basically, and, and encourage the and encourage the king of the Union, Giselle Don Luther, to to partake in, in the drug use. And he's like, oh, I've never done this before. And, it's just, and she's like, just breathe, just breathe. <laughs> and she somehow manages mm. to to get out of there unscathed. So that was a fun little uh, moment with Giselle that I enjoyed the first time. I enjoyed the second time. And it leads us right into the craziness that is the sheer calamity of <laughs> that erupts at Cardati's House of Could- Leisure. Yeah, and I want to say that there there are a couple moments I want to mention for yeah. the Giselle bit. One is that he she tells him when he is he is in a daze, so we don't know how much of this he took in or didn't take in. She Monza told him your wife likes women. Yes. And that's an interesting and he acted thing that happened because he at walked the time, out. But did he remember? Yeah, yeah, we don't know that at this point. So that's a, an interesting moment for I think first law fans looking for like Giselle to wake up a little bit to his situation. Right. Is that like maybe Therese? I mean, saying that someone likes women doesn't mean that they don't like men, but I think that's what Monzo was trying to imply, imply mm-hmm. there. And there's also a moment with Giselle where he says something i'm not finding the quote at the moment but it's like you know i've always had a thing for oh there it is i mean no disrespect but one of you will be more at it than adequate and i have always had a weakness for dark hair oh which you know he's thinking about Artie. yeah (laughs) you know he's thinking about Artie. so i just want to say that for our you know i think most people listening to this are probably folks who've read the whole first law trilogy up to this and the jizal stuff it's it's very interesting. Yep, that's a, I guess what you would call an Easter egg. <laughs> yeah. This, oh, uh, it hurts me. Yeah. Poor Giselle. Yeah, poor Giselle. He still has a thing for Artie, but uh, he can't have her. You know, it just didn't work out that way. And yeah, it's it's brutal. And <laughs> you get to, yeah. it's so transparent and that's in that in that moment. And all of us that remember from First Law, what happens with Giselle, it's like, oh, of course you would have a thing for uh, you know dark-haired women and it's oh, just like poor just all poor just, just all. living in the past <laughs> uh. well what else has he got i'm sure his life is, stinks <laughs> yeah pretty much everyone uh. around him hates him <laughs> and well, thinks very yeah. lowly of him and he's the king which is the oh, just all. <laughs> it hurts yeah so yeah but you can go back and listen to our Giselle character profile and get all into the weeds with exactly right. how tragic his character arc is and you may come away from that feeling a bit more sympathetic towards Giselle if you read him and just found him unlikable and dismissed him uh yeah you, you might get a second chance after listening to that episode Aww. so definitely go check that out he is as tragic as he is delusional so you gotta check that oh. out <laughs> somehow that was savage i think i think batari would have been proud that was quite a lie i was channeling like a talent for so one. you really were all right well charles i will give you a second chance to oh. actually move the plot forward here i assume you're moving toward the 
friendly reaction to insulting his dice. It's like, my dice are loaded or whatever he said. (laughs) Yeah, I think that was it. (laughs) And then you get a cleaver to the head or face or whatever. Yeah, it was to the face. Say what you want about friendly himself. But when it comes to numbers and dice, you don't mess with friendly. Yeah, and this was a side of friendly's character that we are seeing for the first time because he's always been very kind of slow but deliberate in his speech and his actions and he's also been very much like un disassociated from everything that was happening he's just kind of there because his boss wanted him to be there and he's got no stake in any of this he doesn't have really much of a relationship with anybody here and this is the first rise we get out of him. And the result is a brutal act of swift and deadly violence <laughs> of a cleaver to the face. And yeah, that kicks off a whole series of violence. But it's just interesting. It's like, yeah, you insult him, his intelligence, his size, whatever. And then you yeah. insult his dice, which he's considered <laughs> dice and numbers to be the, yeah. and routine to be the most holy of things. Yeah. And you desecrate that. And he's coming for you. So that was a pretty amazing scene. Like of all the things to cause this uh, plan to go haywire, friendly losing it over a pair of dice, an accusation over dice is, is hilarious. And then of course we get all of the performers attacking. You get the band like hitting people with the loots and you get the fire yeah. breather burning the place down and everyone's Greylock trying to kill Shivers. Yes. That for that so sweet good. vengeance of his yes. younger brother in Ulfrith, with which too was I if I remember correctly, Ulfrith That's the was dog man. where the dog man like yeah. He was handled praised it for a, not killing right. people. <laughs> exactly. He only killed and two it's people. Classic. Yeah. <laughs> it's right. classic Abercrombie to, to I mean speak of Easter eggs. Was it that little kid yes. almost that the dog that the dog man was like, Oh, like I hate that this is a thing where we're gonna have to kill this guy. It's so bad. And he's like pissed at himself when he probably yes, they got killed, but if the dog man didn't handle it so well, so many more would have gotten killed and the dog man's beating himself up for it so you get these easter egg moments too here where it's like the i think that oh god what's the line from the first law church it's like the seeds of the past bear fruit in the present right it's like that's always happening as the first law world keeps moving blood only gets more blood it's like yes and it's like okay now graylock like that younger brother had an older brother like that those one of two people who got killed when hundreds could have or whatever they have relatives and now the guy's coming for shivers and shivers has this uh this very interesting moment where he's like he basically speculates that the guy can't can't tell a good man from a bad and he's like well i guess i'll try to kill him too yeah. and it's so it's like shivers if if you're in touch with the part of you that wants to be a good person right now, maybe you wouldn't try. I know this is self-defense, but maybe you wouldn't try to kill him. So it's just an interesting moment <laughs> of like, can't tell a good man from a bad man. What's wrong with this guy? Guess I'll kill him. Yes. <laughs> like, okay, shivers. <laughs> right. And what I also love about that moment is this whole book's about revenge, right? And we're all in these characters' heads and they're agonizing over the decisions to execute revenge or not. And it's this very serious thing. And then you get this moment where they're like, 
play fighting and this guy's like i will have revenge on my brother and you're yeah. like what <laughs> and when it hits you out of nowhere it sounds so stupid and so silly and almost funny but to that right to that character <laughs> yes, yes yes yeah deadly serious and he to the point so where he's true. like you were there so you're i reckon you're good enough you know it wasn't even like the dog man which i guess would be his real his real vengeance achieved sure. would be killing him. Like Shivers wasn't even part of that. I mean, he may have been in at the camp while that in the was vicinity. going on. Yeah, but he certainly had no part in it. And so <laughs> it's like, I will get my revenge, like in the middle of the fight. And, he, and Shivers is like, what? <laughs> it's like, it it, it kind of speaks to like the pointlessness of it all. Yes. It's so funny to get it out of context. It's like, this is what <laughs> so Mons is doing to other people in the world. And it's... Oh. <laughs> Yes, that's true, Charles. And part of it, and it's so well said, it's a great point, because it does have that weird jarring, like, what? Why are you trying to kill Shivers? But meanwhile, Shivers is on this giant path for revenge that he's justifying to himself is because he, like, he wants to help someone else get vengeance for someone else's brother? So, so it's like, Shivers' justification is just as, if not more, like, What? What are you talking about? So, yeah, you get this moment, like you said, Charles, that it's brought attention to how silly that actually is that you're trying to kill people for right. The narrative that drives you to vengeance is so silly and in many cases meaningless. And the narratives that drive all of these characters end up being borderline meaningless until the end. So, well. And Charles, you say the story is about revenge and the story is and vengeance and things like that. Mm-hmm. And the story is about that in a lot of ways. But I actually this will probably be a tease because I don't think I'll say what it is in this part one. But mm. I would make the case after this read that the story is about is not quite most about revenge from a like character perspective. It's about about something else that we'll get into probably in part two but yeah yeah it's so hard for me not to say it (laughs) (laughs) yeah but i'm trying to do charles you're always doing the awesome teases and stuff you got that like good brain for it so i just can't help vomiting all my thoughts up immediately (laughs) so i'm i'm working on it charles we're like over 100 episodes in here i've learned a little bit (laughs) all right well i appreciate that and I mean, we're at a point now. Do we get into Viserine or do we wrap it up? Well, how are we feeling at this time? Uh, a lot happens in a lot happens in yeah. Viserine. We do have a little bit of time. Mm. Um, do we want to get into Shivers' whole eye situation right now? I feel like that's such a no. That's that's, that's such a conversation. Attention. Yeah, it's going to need its yeah. own attention. So anyway, Monza's crew I... rides to Viserine and goes to the safe house. And I think that's a great, maybe a great place. Oh, and to... can we say the whole thing burns down, basically? That the Kurdati's stuff... Yes, yeah, well, we, yeah, let's wrap up Kurdati's. I mean, that place burns yeah. to the ground. Monza does we... get her vengeance. And, we get and... a decompressing moment after where it's like, Monza and Shiver. Shiver saves her life, if I'm remembering correctly. Yes, right? yes. He throws um, her out the window. Oh, and window. she kills. <laughs> yes, and she she does kill Ario. Yes, as well. And then 
we get Shiver saving her life, and while that's all happening, we get the rest of the crew, the merry band, our fellowship here, speculating on what to do, assuming that Monza very well might be dead. Yeah. And Morvir is suggesting, like, <laughs> okay, yeah, like we just got to figure out how to maximize our the amount of money we walk away from here, and forget about her and all this kind of stuff. And I think she basically like walks in on him talking yeah. about that. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, like, we were just deciding what to do here. And Morvir was just just, just to figure yeah. out how oh, to yes. split up the funds. You know, Casca was getting into yes. all that. Casca, <laughs> I think. Yeah, you're right about that. Casca outs and that's an interesting. <laughs> it's just such an interesting relationship between Casca and Morvir too, Charles. Yeah, it's Morvere, like a competition for attention. But... But it's uh, no contest. Yeah, no, no one. Everyone's likes paying attention. Ever, and that's the thing is, everyone does actually. I don't know if like is the right word, but everyone's drawn to Casca. Oh, how everyone could you is happy? entertained by Casca, and when he's talking, people are listening, even if they think he's full of crap. And I think that what more more throughout the story is so nothing bothers him more than the attention that Casca is getting. And he just, I think he can't stand it because he basically sees Casca as doing all the kind of things that Morvir is doing, but people like him for it and everyone yeah. hates Morvir for it. Yeah. It's like blowing yourself up and making everything into a big story and a big show. It's like, that's what Morvir does, but he does it in such an unlikable and narcissistic feeling and unself-aware right. way. While Casca is the first one to sort of like poke fun and be self-aware of his own shtick and that kind of stuff. And people gravitate toward Casca for that. But Morvir is Morvir thinks of himself kind of the way that other people interact with Casca. Yeah. Like he thinks Morvir he should be a person. to yeah. have that kind of attention drawn to him and that kind of uh, respect. And he resents all the attention that Casca is getting. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to extend that. It's like, well, that's because there's, both roguish types in a lot of ways so yes morvir's like i'm doing the same thing over here why aren't they liking me <laughs> and it's like well what you're saying is kind of like mean and and heartless and the things you do yeah. are like disconnected from humanity where at least Costco's not afraid to here, butter oh, people up i got it charles Costco under promises and over delivers yeah and more fear over promises and under delivers and they might be at about the same level of competence if yeah. we're being right like Morvir, it's hard to get a grasp of where he's at because he's like i'm the best poisoner ever blah 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 but i do think he's i think he's good at what he does like he's proficient he's not as good as he thinks he is um but he'll t tell everyone how amazing he is all the time but Casca is self-deprecating. Yes, he'll say, I'm fame, soldier of fortune, blah, 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 blah. But he's like, oh, yeah, no, I betray anyone if they uh, give me money. Like, of course, I prioritize uh, money, loyalties for the birds and those kind of things. He, he wouldn't say for the birds, but it's like, yeah, <laughs> he has all those kind of lines. And then he has these moments where he does actually come through. And not just in terms of competence, but in terms of, like, being a decent person. Morvir never comes through in terms of being a decent person, but he's telling everyone how amazing, and himself, how amazing a person he is. So I think it is that Morvir over-promise, under-delivers. Casca under-promises his own, like, good qualities and then over-delivers on them. Hard to think of Casca's under 
promising his own quality. On his positive, no, I, I, on his own positive like characteristics as a person. I guess like <laughs> he's just you, very, very. Um, uh, no, he's very uh, self-admiring. You know, he thinks. Very yes, highly but of he's no, but in like I'm famous. I did all these incredible things. I'm accomplished. He thinks highly of himself. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like, I'm loyal. I'm a good person. I help people. I care about people. He never says anything like that. Oh, but right. his behaviors completely indicate that he cares about Monza for sure and lots of other people and he taught Monza to read dude Uh, friendly he cares about he's always he's frequently doing these things that indicate he cares about people all the while telling people like oh no like I don't care I have no loyalty that's honor loyalty I think at one point in the first law trilogy he says something like "Uh, you can't eat it like you (laughs) you can't I think he uses a word I can't use on uh, our clean uh, podcast, but I think he says, you can't F it, you can't, (laughs) right? You can't do anything with the idea of honor or loyalty, so what's the point of it? And meanwhile, he has this, like, care and loyalty for Monza and friendly and a freaking goat and all these things that Morvir never shows. So, yeah, like, it's a weird thing to say Casca under promises because he's always saying how I don't know. I think most of what he says he's great about, it's like stuff in the past. And then even when he's promising things, he's like, oh, yeah, I told you I like uh, I told you I would stop drinking like, ha ha ha. I'm just joking. But then he actually does stop drinking. It's like, I told you I'm going to get my life together. And then he does for a little while. It's like (laughs) he's. I don't know. It's interesting because well, he's super. They, people can change, but you know, sometimes what is it? They they change. Back. I have that quote. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, and we I don't have, need to get. I can read it. We can get into that when the, we talk more Costco later. But um, do you want me to read the quote, or you want to wait? Ah, uh, we'll oh, wait because we didn't really okay. bring it all so together. Good. But it is a great yeah. quote, and yes, Costco does change, but he also changes back very frequently, and we we we've seen the different states of Costco before, <laughs> and it's good when he's on a when he's riding the highs. It's 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 fun to see him. Oh, so. can I make a different a different quote from Costco? Okay. I have frittered my gifts away on nothing. Self pity and self hatred have led me by unsavory paths to self neglect, self injury, and the br- very brink of self destruction. The unifying theme, he asks, yourself, says Monza. Precisely so, vanity, Monza. And it's like these moments from Costco. That's what I'm saying is like, he knows it. He knows that he puffs himself up and all those kind of things. And to, this guy is telling you all of these failures all the time so it he's just a very interesting and compelling character i think because sure he self-aggrandizes constantly but deeper than that is this awareness of all the things that he's done wrong and how he could do better does he change at the end of it <laughs> ah, that's a that's a conversation for later but <laughs> that's well said have i sold you at all charles uh, the casket stuff. Yeah, I mean, I was—I never doubted you. I was with you the oh. whole way. I just—I um, I just needed a little extra context on the on what he's promising. And yeah, I mean, he—he he would never admit to loving someone. He would never admit to being compassionate towards people. 
but he is. And I think that's yeah. what we enjoy about Casca as a character. Is the more we learn about him, the more we like, and the more we get these flashbacks of him with Monza over the years, the more we like him. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's just one of those fun things but we you know we gotta be mindful of where we're at this is a two-parter after all yeah and we're at a good spot in the story as cardati's burns to the ground and the gang rides to viscerine <laughs> that is where we're headed some fun stuff happening right at the start of the next episode and uh, you yes. won't believe it until you see it people <laughs> Ooh. i think they'll believe it they read the book. Yeah. I, I was just well, trying to I, make I an eye pun. <laughs> I oh okay yeah oh there's a lot of I'll get into it when we get yes good tease Charles thank you thank you and um, yeah bef- before we talk ourselves into another hour and a half here which we could easily do about this book there's so <laughs> much know. more plot to go we're gonna call it here for the day yeah. and we will return to best mm. serve cold very soon you know we release three episodes a week so you won't have to wait long for that part two to come out for now though we hope you enjoyed the beginnings of this always a pleasure to be talking joe abercrombie with my lifelong friend and co-host dylan i feel the same exact way charles i always just adore these opportunities and i'm so grateful that folks that folks are interested hearing us talk about some of our favorite novels by one of our favorite authors and Joe Abercrombie. And it's an absolute pleasure sharing that with you, Charles. Ah, likewise, dude. It's good to hear. So shall we not delay any longer and play that outro music? Let's, let's get that sweet, sweet outro music pumping, Charles. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. This has been your co-host, Charles and Dylan, talking first law with you guys today. Yeah. We're getting into the standalones. We are back and better than ever with Best Served Cold. If you like what you heard today, you want to hear more, you, you want to give us some feedback, best place to do that is over out there on Twitter at the FTF Podcast with a number one at the end. Yeah. Also on Instagram at the FTF Podcast. Now, Dylan, if they like the show and they want to support mm. the show even further than reaching oh. out on Twitter or Instagram, and they just so happen to be listening on Apple Podcasts, okay. what can they do? Toss five stars to our podcast. Just yes. find that Friends Talking Fantasy page on the Apple Podcast app. Click the Friends Talking Fantasy page and scroll down past those episodes until you start seeing stars. Once you're seeing stars, the optimal number of stars to click to support the show would be five of them. If you have a little bit of extra time and you want to go that next step of support, then writing review is so helpful for a podcast like ours but just listening is more than enough thank you all so much for listening to us talk about first law we'll see you again real soon with best serve cold part two but until then guys as always go forth and conquer friends